This February, we'll be starting our third 91-week journey through the Word of God, doing it together as a community of faith. If that's a brand new concept to you, there's literature out in the lobby that'll help you to understand it, but it is a very well-organized, read the entirety of the scriptures over 91 weeks program. You don't go chronologically. There is explanation commentary by Pastor Soper, and then this year I'll be providing additional commentary on how each week's readings tell us something about how God transforms our lives. So again, we'll be starting in February. Get the reading schedule, get set. You can also find it on the app, and let's believe God together for more testimonies like that one as we journey through the Word. Now, I have the privilege of making two announcements today before we look into the Word. First of all, we talked a bit with you about succession planning about a month and a half ago, and we said we wouldn't start to give you the details of that until after the holidays. Well, next week, we're going to make good on our promise. During our worship service, there'll be about a four-minute video, and in that video, Two of the men leading the succession planning will be sharing with you the view from 30,000 feet, what our process is going to be and how that's all going to unfold. Then in subsequent weeks, by print, on the app, on the website, we'll be giving you some of the fine details of that so that you can understand how we're going about it and so that you can put your prayers behind what we're calling Finding Joshua. I haven't used that phrase for a while, but we'll re-up it next weekend. Then secondly, I want to give you a praise report. As you know, if you've been here for a while, we practice what I call a culture of quiet generosity here. By that, I mean we simply believe that if we're doing what God wants us to do, God will take care of the finances of doing that. And that's our simple formula. And we don't make empty promises. We don't tell you if you give X amount of dollars, you're going to find a Mercedes Benz in your driveway. We don't distort. We don't manipulate. We don't jack people around emotionally. When there's a need, we simply tell you what the need is, ask you to pray, and do whatever God lays on your heart. That's worked for 125 years. It ain't broke. We're not going to fix it. Now, normally, as you know, we come into December needing the equivalent of three months of giving in order to make our budget. And that's because a lot of our folks don't do their giving until December when they close the books on their business, their enterprise. This year was particularly challenging, December, because this past year we engaged the Expanded Influence Next Gen campaign. And we ask you to make generous, faith-based pledges to that, which you have done. And we also suggested that if you could sort of front load some of your gifts, it would help us when it comes time for us to break ground and start on that expansion. And you did that. But we began to discern that having given some gifts to start the campaign, folks might not have them in December, as usual. So all that to say, we came into the last weekend of the year needing $100,000 to make budget. That's not, $100,000 is not a normal week of giving here. It's well in excess of that. Uh, it's well in excess of a normal week. So we needed 100000 and we only received 200000 <laughs> So here, here's the exciting news. 
as you know, this congregation invests hundreds of thousands a year in helping the poor in our community. This congregation gives over a million dollars a year to taking the gospel around the world. This congregation has about a $5 million budget to be open 24-7 doing the work of God in this place and around our community. And this congregation is not a wealthy congregation. And this congregation during 2018 has already given over a million and a half dollars to the expanded gen campaign. On top of all that, we had our second highest December giving in our history, over $1.1 million in the month of December. God always pays for what he orders. And people who are willing to trust him accumulate stories like this one. And people who aren't, they just keep decreasing their ministry footprint. But when God answers prayer, we should always pause and say thanks, and we should never take it for granted. So I want you to stand where you are. I want you to join hands with somebody near to you so that as a congregation, I can lead us in a prayer of thanks to our God for another year of financial miracle. We have no business, given our demographics, being able to do what we do. But God is bigger than any of the challenges that we face. So let's thank him together. Father, we are thankful that where you guide, you provide. And where your people are willing to trust you for that which would be impossible without you, you always honor that faith. Father, I thank you for the way these men and women respond out of simple love for Jesus, love for the kingdom, and prayer. I'm thankful that year after year, as we make the need known, they seek your face and response without prompting, without emotional nonsense, without empty promises. I thank you for their generosity. I thank you for their maturity. But Lord, we all thank you for making that possible for the way you provide for our lives and position us that we can provide for the work of your kingdom. Lord, I thank you for moving upon the hearts of your people. I thank you for doing something greater than our combined resources. And I thank you for yet another answer to prayer that affirms our direction, that affirms the vision you've entrusted to us, that says to us, we are doing what you want us to do. We are going where you want us to go. We are following you, and you've got our back. So, Lord, we give you thanks. This is your doing, not ours. We give you all the glory, all the honor, for apart from Jesus, every one of us, would be selfish. But with Jesus, we can grow in the grace of giving. Thank you for what this means for ministry. Thank you for what it means for ministry to people we'll never see in this life. Thank you for what it means in the hearts of the people who allowed you to stretch their faith. Again, we give you praise, we give you thanks, and all of God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I love church when it follows the script. <laughs> well, today we're going to return to our rather on-again, off-again study of the Old Testament book of Daniel. 
It's an ancient story, but it demonstrates how we can live in, how we can engage, and how we can witness to a corrupt culture without compromising our devotion to God. That is possible. Now, if you're joining us for the first time in our series, if you began attending after the start of the new year, I want to encourage you to listen to the previous seven teachings. You'll find them on the app. You'll find them online. And listening to all seven won't take any more time than one NFL playoff game. But it will get you up to speed. And I think the eternal results will be a lot more satisfying. If you've been with us on the journey, if you're a regular part of our family, let me remind you where we left off. Five weeks ago, we saw that the pagan king who required Daniel and his friends, Jewish exiles, to learn Babylonian thought was about to learn God's thoughts. He didn't know it, but God did. His name was Nebuchadnezzar, and his eventual spiritual transformation started quietly and slowly, the way usually God begins his work. It all began with a dream planted in his mind by God. He sought an interpretation of that dream, and today we're going to see what happened next and what it has to say to each of us. To set the stage, I'm going to read Daniel's response when the king asked him, can you interpret my dream? It's found in Daniel 2, verses 27 and 28. Daniel answered before the king, here's what he said. As for the mystery about which you inquire, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. I'm entitling today's study, Living Inside Two Stories. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege and the honor of preaching and teaching your word. I am not, nor will I ever be, worthy of that honor, but I thank you. I want to be faithful to my commission, so by your Spirit, Enable me to represent your heart accurately, to interpret your word accurately, to apply it prophetically to the moment in which we live. And then, Lord, help each of us to not only understand it, because we can't do that on our own, but help us to apply it, to make it a part of our daily life. As always, we pray these things so that Jesus might be better represented in us and through us. And we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we listen for the voice of God today through his word, may the Lord be with you. Last week, I suggested that wise people value diversity. But wise people also recognize there are ways in which we are all alike. And here's one of them. Every one of us has embraced a defining story, a narrative that we use to explain our existence in this world and that we call upon to navigate our way through life. And the story that we adopt shapes every aspect of our life. It shapes our thoughts and emotions. It shapes our actions and our reactions. It shapes our expectations, our values, 
our choices, our relationships. It shapes what we think about God, what we think about ourselves, what we think about others. So it's vitally important that we choose the right narrative, that we choose the right defining story. Now fortunately, we don't have to depend on trial and error. Jesus came and told us which story is the right story. And he made it clear it's God's story. It's God's narrative about human existence found in his written word and revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has given the human race the right story. But we all know God doesn't force anybody to adopt his story. So the majority of people, sadly, adopt counterfeit alternative stories. Stories that have their origin in false religions, atheism, human philosophy, politics, family, culture, or past experiences. In addition to shaping our life, the story we adopt is important because it has a profound effect on how we engage culture, how we engage the culture in which we live. And I want to suggest to you that engaging culture is not an extremely difficult task for those who have embraced a counterfeit story or a counterfeit narrative. Now, why do I make that claim? I make that claim because human cultures are founded upon. Human cultures are reinforced by. Human cultures perpetuate the counterfeit stories and narratives of unbelief. So, somebody who has adopted a counterfeit story may not agree with every aspect of the culture in which they live, but they are in fundamental spiritual alignment with that culture. And that means they only have to live inside one story. Now, in contrast, those who follow Jesus live inside two stories the one supplied by God, and the prevailing story of the culture in which they live. And living inside two stories is not for the faint of heart. Because the stories of God and the counterfeit stories of culture have fundamental irreconcilable differences. And that creates spiritual tension and spiritual distraction, and spiritual dissonance. A number of years ago, when our home on Federal Street was being completed, Karen and I had to spend eight months living with our daughter, Autumn, in her lower level. It's not a basement, but it was the lower level. And right next door to her home was a rental property, and the tenants tended to turn over about once a year. Well, there was a particular tenant who obviously was an aspiring rap artist. <laughs> because every night, as Karen and I were attempting to read or to watch something on television, we could hear what had to be just a humongous set of subwoofers <laughs> laying out the backbeat for a rap Again and again and again and again and again and again while he was practicing his rap over top of that beat. Can I tell you that is really distracting? 
Because, I mean, it was like listening to Nicki Minaj on steroids. It was just <laughs> dun, 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 same beat over and over and over again. But that's what it's like to live in two stories, to try to follow the story of God while you're living in the stories of culture. There's a dissonance. There's a distraction. There's a tension. And to further complicate that, God calls us to witness to those who have embraced the counterfeit stories of culture while he assures us they will seek to silence his story. So we're commissioned to share God's story with them while they're going to do what they can to silence his story in us. All of that to say this, living in two stories can be really discouraging. And God's people often need encouragement, and that's where today's story from Daniel can help us. Nebuchadnezzar suspected that the strange dream God planted in his mind had massive implications for him and his empire. I've got a hunch, given his power, Nebuchadnezzar thought everything was all about him. So when his supposed experts couldn't reveal his dream, let alone interpret it, as you remember, he ordered their execution. And Daniel and his friends were among that group of wise men, even though they were of different stock, so their lives were a threat as well. But you'll remember Daniel prayed. And in answer to his prayer, God gave him the information that the angry potentate was seeking. So Daniel requested an audience with Nebuchadnezzar. But first, he requested that the king's spiritual advisors be spared from execution. Now, that was a generous move. I say that because Daniel knew they were posers. They were bogus. They were self-serving. And their stories opposed the stories of his faith. He also knew that they were senior in rank. And if they were to be removed, he and his friends would immediately be promoted. But most of all, Daniel knew they wouldn't do the same thing for him. They didn't care about him. He was just a Jewish exile. And he was proven right because not many years later, some of them who were spared sought to have him thrown to the lions. But despite all of that, Daniel pleaded for their lives. Because contrary to popular misconceptions and the accusations toward believers that we hear all the time in this culture, those who embrace God's story are able to show true tolerance to those who live in another story. See, this culture doesn't understand what tolerance is. Tolerance is not the simplistic, affirm everything, political correctness that stifles free expression and stifles debate lest someone be offended. That's not tolerance. That's cultural bullying. That's moral ambiguity. And it's spiritual bondage. Because tolerance always assumes disagreement. If I don't have a disagreement with you, I don't need tolerance. You don't need tolerance. Tolerance assumes disagreement. 
And the actions of Daniel reminds us that real tolerance is shown when God's people show love to those who are living in a contrary story. When we love neighbors who have adopted a counterfeit narrative and seek their welfare. So the accusation that believers are intolerant, don't be intimidated by that. That's a threadbare defense mechanism used by those who are afraid of God's story because it threatens their fears and their pride. Daniel was quickly rushed into Nebuchadnezzar's presence. And historians tell us that Nebuchadnezzar usually had live lions chained on both sides of his throne for effect. That would get your attention. And seated between the lions was a man who was angry, insecure, and notoriously unpredictable. So I suspect as young Daniel walked in, he was a bit nervous. But I don't for one minute believe that he was panicked or intimidated. Because Daniel knew that those who live in God's story never stand alone. God is always with us. I've said to you before, I'll say it again. If you could see Jesus standing next to you every moment of your life, you wouldn't be fearful of any situation, any encounter, any problem, any challenge. You would be able to go anywhere and talk to anybody with the boldness of God. And the reality is, though you can't see him, he is with you all the time. Daniel knew that. When this culture intimidates you, remember, Jesus is standing with you. One person with Jesus is a power majority, no matter where they find themselves. Well, the king asked Daniel, are you able to interpret my dream? And I love Daniel's response. No, nobody could do that. But I know somebody who can. There is a God in heaven, and he reveals mysteries. And with that, Daniel retold and interpreted the king's dream. Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, had seen a large statue made out of various kinds of metal. The head was pure gold. The chest and arms, silver. The belly and the thighs, bronze. The legs, iron. And oddly enough, the feet were made of an unstable mix of iron and clay. Those things don't mix together. And while the king watched this vision, a large stone that had not been cut by human hands struck the feet of the statue, pulverizing them, turning them into dust. With that, the entire statue came down until it was nothing but dust, and then a wind blew the dust away. But the rock that struck the feet grew and grew and grew until it filled the earth. You ever had that dream? <laughs> I always have the same nightmare, that it's the last day of the semester and I haven't been to class or done any of my assignments. You guys have that too. I'm always glad to wake up from that one. But I've never seen a big statue in a rock, see. But no wonder that Nebuchadnezzar was troubled. Because if the dream was about him, which part was he playing? If the statue represented his enemies, 
then hopefully it meant he was the rock and he was going to smash them. What if the statue represented his empire? And, and that unstable base of iron and clay, well, that could symbolize the fact that his empire was made up of conquered peoples who had historically been at odds with one another. And it's tough to build an empire on division. So did it mean his empire was about to crumble? But if it did, who or what was the rock that was going to destroy his empire? And it was left to Daniel to fill in the blanks. Now, I want you to notice something. He began by calling Nebuchadnezzar king of kings. Almost sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? But it wasn't blasphemy. It wasn't flattery. It wasn't an insult to God. It was a political reality. Because Nebuchadnezzar's empire had subdued many smaller nations. And he had sub subdued the kings of those nations, Israel included. So he was politically a king over other kings. And then Daniel went on to tell the king, you've been put in your position as the head of this empire by my God, the God of heaven. And you are God's servant. And that sounded so preposterous, I got a hunch it, it, he might have been speaking more to himself than to the king when Daniel said, and this interpretation is trustworthy. Does it sound strange to you that God would put a pagan ruler in a place of leadership knowing his armies would conquer his own people? Imagine how that sounded to Daniel and his friends. Imagine how it sounded to the people of Israel. Their cruel conqueror who subjugated them and embarrassed them and dehumanized them was put in that position by God. Now that serves to remind us of something very important. God has purposes we don't understand. They're above our pay grade. And they're wider. The purposes of God are wider than our politics. They're wider than our preferences. And they're wider than our prejudices. That's why God's people should be cautious about confidently declaring that a particular leader is in his or her post in contradiction to the will of God. Because apart from an infallible revelation like that given to Daniel, we can't possibly know that. Now, in this politically polarized climate, as you know, I'm not endorsing or condemning any policy, any politician, any party. I'm not suggesting that we as God's people should remain silent about evil in a ruler or not speak up about evil policies, we absolutely should. We should be the voices for God's justice in human culture. And I'm certainly not suggesting the evils we find in a ruler are acceptable to God. They are not. I'm simply reminding you that the testimony of Scripture, including Daniel, is that God raises up kings and God removes kings. And who he raises up and who he removes is often based on what's going on inside the nation. God often establishes rulers as a way of punishing a nation for its sin. 
Other times, God establishes a ruler to make a nation aware of its sin. Sometimes, God appoints a ruler to make his church, his people inside a nation, aware of their sins. You know, the Old Testament says, whenever the people of Israel began to forsake God, he gave them bad rulers because that's what they deserved. And he went on to say that the time will come in this nation when you will not select your leaders based on wisdom, you'll pick your leaders based on celebrity and appearance. Talk about nothing new under the sun. You'll seek, he uses the figurative language, you'll look for somebody who's attractive or somebody who has a new coat, the trappings of financial success, and you'll ask them to be your leader. In another place, he says, I'll give you immature, unskilled, unworthy people to be your leaders. Why? Because when a society flaunts the word of God and embraces sin, God will discipline it, God will punish it. And if God gives a nation bad rulers because they have rejected his truth, we're hardly in a position to cry foul and lay blame at God's doorstep because we created the mess. God's simply responding to it. All that to say, be careful about making confident declarations. Now, Daniel went on to accurately prophesy the next three world empires that would follow Babylon, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. And then he shifted his attention to a fourth empire. It was symbolized by that rock. And the rock in Daniel's vision symbolized the kingdom of God. And he said that rock would emerge during the last of the empires. When did Jesus land on the earth that he created? during the time of the Roman Empire. And Jesus didn't emerge out of the Roman Empire. He was God, investing himself in the race that he created. So one of the first things Jesus said is, my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom was established in the earth, but it won't replace the earth. It will one day cover the earth, and it will one day restore the earth. And unlike human empires, the rock grew while the others dissolved. God's kingdom is indestructible. God's kingdom is eternal. So the vision assured Nebuchadnezzar, you're okay for the moment with your little kingdom, but the future belongs to the kingdom of God. You're just lint on the pages of history. You're just temporary. The future belongs to the to the kingdom of God. So in a matter of minutes, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. He learned he hadn't gained his place in history because he was better than everybody else. He learned his power was temporary and sorely limited. He learned the empire that was his obsession was destined to pass. And he learned that it's God who has power over all the empires of the earth. And with that, Nebuchadnezzar knelt at the feet of a Jewish teenager to honor him and declare his God was superior. Imagine what people in the room were thinking. Think of the shockwaves that went through that room. Most powerful man on the face of the earth kneeling before a teenage exile under his thumb because he knew his God was powerful. 
Now, Nehemiah or Nebuchadnezzar wasn't converted. Next chapter will make that clear. He was probably just relieved his empire wasn't going to come to an end. But it was a start, and God was going to keep working with him. Now, in closing, I want to apply, there's those words you like, in closing. I want to apply the symbolism of that metal statue and the rock that pulverized it. And I'm taking this sentence from a Christian writer named Christopher Wright. I never want to take credit for another man's work. And here's what he said in regards to this vision. He said, believers can live with the metals if they remember the rock has landed. You can live with the metals, the passing empires and cultures and unbelief and counterfeits of this world if you know God has landed and he's eternal and these are all going to come to pass. You can live confidently inside a corrupt culture if you remember the future belongs to God. And that's why after learning all of this, Daniel and his friends didn't withdraw to some prayer retreat for the rest of their lives. They continued their civic responsibilities in the government of Babylon and took on new positions and increased responsibility. They served inside a corrupt culture without ever compromising the kingdom of God. They lived in two stories, the story of the statue and the story of the rock. You and I live in two stories, the story of the statue, the story of the rock. If you remember, the latter is eternal, the first is passing, you can live in two stories. And you can witness to a culture and engage a culture and live in a culture without ever compromising your devotion to God. Be encouraged by that. And let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I'm thankful we don't need to be intimidated by the false narratives of the world. Because no matter how polished the presentation of a bad idea, it's still a bad idea. No matter how popular a lie is, it's still a lie. And no matter how rejected your truth is, it's still your truth. So help us to be encouraged as we live in two stories, as we live in the dissonance, and help us to remember the rock has landed and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. As has been said, we've read to the end of the book, and God wins. Amen. <laughs>